Hi, I'm Valerie Steele, Director and Chief Curator of the Museum at FIT, the most fashionable museum in New York City. Welcome to our Fashion Culture podcast series, featuring lectures and conversations about fashion. If you like what you hear, please share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag #FashionCulture. Thank you so much for joining us today. I also want to extend my special thanks to Melissa Mara Alvarez, who is our curator of Force of Nature. Um, you know, I'd love to say that Melissa and I were thinking years ahead. We really thought we were going to encompass ideas of science. But as with so many things, these happened rather serendipitously. And I was so excited to hear that she, too, was embarking on this project. I have to admit that um, if you go and look at the exhibition and think about the ideas, it's very expansive, but that's not how it started for me. The idea of looking at clothing made for survival in the North and South Poles, uh, the very highest mountain peaks, the depths of the ocean, and beyond in outer space, started very modestly at a fashion show. I was looking at the work of the young French-born designer, Joseph Altuzura, who had come to the United States and presented his first collection in 2011. And what Joseph had done was to make, very chic as he does and very sexy and glamorous, something highly utilitarian, the parka, in particular this one based on the Korean War era parka, the M51 and the M48. Um, the following year, he did another set of parkas, this time inspired more closely by those of the indigenous peoples of the Arctic. And what struck me was not only that the parkas were so utilitarian and beautiful, but people were actually wearing them at his fashion shows the following season. Um, this is Jenna Lyons, the former creative director of J. Crew, in one of the lovely photographs of her taken actually in the snow. And she was wearing it during a particularly brutally cold winter here in New York. And so I stepped forward confidently thinking, no problem, I'm going to learn a lot about exploration until I had to start reading about it. And books like The Worst Journey in the World were in fact that for me. Um, I, this ill-fated expedition to the South Pole, several people died, uh, they were eating their ponies, and in several other books where people were actually removing their own frostbitten digits, I thought, wow, this is not exactly what I thought was going to be the end result. And while there was talk of certainly clothing and how it was very important or how to, sometimes the wrong choice of clothing uh, was very ill-fated for these explorers, it was my colleagues, especially Sarah Pickman and Lacey Flint, who will speak a little bit later, who stepped up and really did so much for me to understand the basics. What I did understand was expeditions, the way we think of them, going to these extreme climates, is a relatively new phenomenon. When we think about early explorers, for example, Christopher Columbus, we just celebrated uh, yesterday, coming to the New World, um, they were not coming to think about science or to look at flora and fauna, they were coming to make money, or they were coming for political advantage. And that was to change quite dramatically in the 19th century. A number of our speakers will be talking about the rise of science, uh, especially looking at the natural environment as a very important uh, development uh, especially in Great Britain and then later in countries like the United States. On the Origin of Species, one of the most important books published in the 19th century by Charles Darwin revolutionized the concept and thinking of our world. And we see that this imprint had a huge impact on the idea of expeditions as being part of this field of scientific discovery. 
But I also quickly learned that popular culture played a huge role, and someone like Jules Verne became perhaps one of the most important pop culture figures to spread the glamour and the idea of going to exotic, far-flung, and often dangerous locales. What made Verne so interesting is he was an attorney who became a writer, uh, and he's a highly respected writer in France. Uh, because of the poor translation of many of his books, he never achieved that uh, cult status here in the non-French speaking world. But his books had tremendous impact on everyone from Jacques Cousteau to early astronauts. And partly because not only were the books exciting, and he's really thought of as the father of science fiction, but the books were also remarkably prescient. In one of them, From the Earth to the Moon, published in 1865, he correctly predicted that the Americans would be the first people to walk on the moon and that they would be launching their rockets in the appropriate latitudes of either Florida or Texas. And he also came up with some other um, far ahead of their time ideas for deep sea exploration, the idea of submergibles in which humans could survive. But its impact on fashion was not immediate. Um, this sort of very charming pair of photographs of the actress Sarah Bernhardt in a production a lot of people had never really heard of, The Ocean Empress, uh, around 1880, I think signifies the sort of novelty of things like deep sea diving suits that Ariel will talk a little bit more about later. It was a one-off. And in a certain way, fashion illustrations from that time period were also um, that way. Georges Lepape, the well-known um, art modern era fashion illustrator, often depicted women um, doing daring things like driving cars quickly or shooting guns. Um, but this is one of his most extreme, the idea of a woman actually spearing a polar bear, but doing so rather chicly in an outfit I'm sure no native Inuit woman would have worn. Even rarer, especially before World War II, was the concept where clothes were actually inspired by things such as uh, the clothing of the people of the Arctic. This was an unusual example that we see here during World War I where museum curators, specifically ethnographers, were pairing up with fashion and textile designers to look at non-Western clothing as sources of inspiration. But that, again, was a short-lived phenomenon. Things began to change dramatically after World War II. Uh, we began to see interest in explorers. This is the famed F Peter Freuken, about six feet, seven inches tall, with his fashion illustrator wife, uh, Dagmar Cohn. And I think one of his great claims to fame, aside from being a famous explorer, uh, is that he did win the $64,000 question, the television show that was so popular. But what we really noticed, and Liz Ariel and I sort of across the board saw this phenomenon, uh, was that the 1960s was really the birth of this idea, where designers were looking at material from these areas of the world, and we were beginning to see the role that fashion photography was playing. Thanks to Diana Vreeland and other editors, fashion became much more experimental, a little wilder, and sources of inspiration ranging from space to deep sea, as well as the coldest winter environments, were very inspirational. It was so much so that even couturiers like Madame Grey for a while started to look at non-Western clothing as sources of inspiration. And this is one of the wildest. This is actually in the exhibition. We have this ensemble, her incredible fur pants made with wolf fur. But we also wanted to say that as the 20th century progressed, we do see that designers were looking directly at indigenous peoples. And one of the reasons why this may have come about uh, rather interestingly, Sarah Pickman will describe this a little bit more, is that we did have explorers looking at indigenous Inuit garments. Um, I just wanted to point out the gentleman sitting on the sled. Um, he is Matthew Henson, 
considered at the time in 1909, along with Robert Perry, to have been the first humans to reach the North Pole. Um, I think that's since been disputed, but they were still heroes for decades and decades. And Henson's story is particularly remarkable because of his role of being an African-American, self-taught, and he was so um, kind and gentle to the people of the North that they actually nicknamed him the kind one. But we see that his outfit, which is actually on view, we were very lucky the Berkshire Museum lent that, uh, was a wonderful juxtaposition, not only with actual indigenous garments, but also how we started to see the, if you will, explosion, the look at fur, for example, became much more experimental also after the war. The important thing also is the idea of on-location shooting. And in fact, this was one of the big sources of inspiration for this particular project. We had several photographs by John Cowan, uh, our poster girl, which you saw on the first slide, and other shots like these were done um, in the very northest reaches of Canada. Uh, and one of the things that's interesting is I don't think the photographer, the models, or the stylists had any idea of what they were getting into. They actually had to be escorted to this area. It was so remote by the Canadian Mounties. And when they were there, John Cowan would describe how the film actually froze up and buckled because it was so cold. And the models couldn't stay out for very long periods of time because although they look like they're wearing warm clothes, it was not nearly enough for the environment. The other thing that was interesting, and I think why Diana Vreeland was able to push this idea, is that the photographers themselves were very creative. Um, John Cowan was a very interesting figure, one of the sources of inspiration for Michelangelo Antonioni's uh, film Blow Up, and the famous scene where he's straddling the model Verushka was in fact inspired by John's style. But he was a little too crazy and nearly died. Uh, he had too much fun in the canteen one night and decided he was going to wander around. And thankfully, the Canadian Mounties got him before the environment did. By the time the uh, 20th century progressed, we started to see many more designers embracing the idea of Arctic clothing. And amongst the most beautiful collections inspired by their work were people like Yoji Yamamoto from 2000 and the work of Karl Lagerfeld, both designers represented in the exhibition. Um, Lagerfeld's presentation especially was remarkable because although it was inspired by Arctic clothing, the fur, in fact, was faux fur, something that they stressed. Uh, but the icebergs are original. He brought them in from Scandinavia just for the fashion show. But perhaps two of the most famous um, Arctic-inspired collections were those by Jean-Paul Gaultier from 1994, uh, popular because, in fact, uh, Bjork, her one famed uh, trek down the runway, got a lot of coverage, but also because it was documented somewhat in the wonderful film Unzipped. Uh, this is a documentation of Isaac Mizrahi's fall-winter 1994 collection. And if you get a chance on November 7th, we're going to play the film. It's actually wonderful and zany, just like Isaac is. And what struck me about it is that um, he was inspired by, first of all, Nanook of the North. This was a very important uh, 1922 documentary. And he was mesmerized by the quote-unquote uh, indigenous peoples in the film. But he also was looking at other uh, projects and films, such as Call of the Wild, the movie The Red Shoes, and Mary Tyler Moore. This odd combination, you would think, would not upset him when he found out that um, Jean-Paul Gaultier's uh, collection got on the cover of women's wear. Isaac was distraught, very upset about it. But the reality is his collection was absolutely brilliant, colorful, ebullient, and very, very different, if you will, from the more literal translations by Gaultier. 
But the parka, an Inuit invention, is another garment that has entered into our collective conscious through other means. I mentioned earlier the idea of the Korean conflict um, leading to the production of the M48 and M51 parkas. These were very versatile garments. They were made with high-quality materials and were specially layered to combat the really brutal temperatures uh, in Korea at the time. But what was important is the way in which these coats, which quickly became surplus after the end of the Korean conflict, found their way into fashion, especially through the counterculture. The mods began to wear them as early as the late 1950s. We're seeing groups like the punks appropriating the M48 and M51, and even the grunge style uh, embraced it, especially Kate Moss, we see her actually wearing an authentic version on the cover of British Vogue. And in fact, that's where Joseph Altazura got his inspiration. He said, of course, his jackets were not identical. He had to do a lot of testing, refitting, reshaping these garments in order to make them look chic and desirable. But the jumping off point was looking at, uh, again, through, if you will, through many filters, the idea of an indigenous garment. Now, on the flip side of this, we were looking at the idea of how the parka, and especially what we now call the puffer, how it entered into uh, popular culture and fashion. We're very fortunate that both Eddie Bauer, uh, the, the uh, Museum of History and Industry, lent us this particular piece. Uh, started to be designed around 1935 when Eddie Bauer, an outdoorsman, nearly died of hypothermia. Uh, the uh, descendant of a family whose some members had served in the Cossack army understood the insulating qualities of things like duvets, which they wore underneath their coats. But Eddie Bauer realized you could actually turn this into a piece of outerwear, and by 1940 had produced what we believe might be the first uh, down jacket produced in the United States. Around the same time, a remarkable garment by Charles James was created in 1937, the first, if you will, high fashion puffer. And we're so grateful to the Victorian Albert for lending this gorgeous garment, which is again on view in the collection. But it was really after Tenzing Norgay and Edmund Hillary had ascended um, the first, if you will, successfully recorded humans to reach the top of Mount Everest in 1953, that things like outerwear, extreme clothing, and down all became part of uh, mainstream culture, if you will. Companies like REI, Patagonia, North Face, and Montclair not only were created at this time period, they also expanded their businesses. Um, but I do think the company that produced the down sleeping bags, Fairy Down, as it was called, soon quit their, uh, changed their names to be a little bit more masculine and meet these ideas. And again, we're grateful to the uh, Museum of History and Industry for lending us this particular piece that was worn by the first American to ascend uh, Mount Everest. What I began to notice quickly, though, is by the 1970s, a variety of jackets, quilted, down, fiber-filled, parkas, were all beginning to enter the, if you will, visual lexicon of American fashion. Um, there certainly were versions in Europe as well. But I've always wondered whether or not this jumping off point had something to do with the revitalization and the visual interest in Charles James's 1937 creation, which was photographed and appeared in magazines like Esquire in 1973 and in the New York Times. It was right around that time also that Norma Kamali came up with her now famous sleeping bag coat, and Norma will be joining us this afternoon. It's interesting to me the jacket is still produced in many variations, um, but the question is whether or not it had an impact or an influence on designers like Martin Margiela, who created his version 25 years after Kamali did hers. 
And the other way that we see the proliferation of things like the puffer and the down jacket is through popular culture like hip hop. Perhaps no music style has had more influence on it. And so many of the early hip hop stars were being worn by pioneers like Tommy Hilfiger who understood the importance of the music movement at that time. We also questioned whether or not things like um, Missy Elliott's uh, wonderful 1997 uh, video uh, Super Dupa Fly had something to do with it. This incredible costume by uh, June Ambrose uh, looks somewhat like a later collection done by Junya Watanabe. Again, Watanabe is a brilliant constructivist and technician, someone who really looks at the creation and process. But again, trying to draw the lines and parallels here between popular culture and high fashion. And then we come to this particular piece again in the exhibition, the idea that at the very highest peak, the hottest fashion label around is now producing garments that evoke on one level the sort of mastery of couture coming from the house of Balenciaga by Dina Gisalia, the jacket which is intentionally meant to fall off the shoulders, a kind of modern version of reappropriating uh, ideas from extreme expeditions, but also in a way that looks to the construction innovations of Balenciaga himself. To what we see today, this idea that almost everybody has a down jacket, a parka, or some sort of outerwear that we can trace back to this incredible set of uh, indigenous garments and the feats of early expeditioneers. I really think, as Dr. Brown said, that science is just a jumping off point. We are in such an interesting but somewhat scary political situation now, and things like science is being attacked. Um, we hope that its incorporation into fashion and that future exploration by many scholars will again be the template that we look forward to in the future. Thank you very much.